Welcome to Because the Beatles, the podcast about the Beatles, everything about the Beatles 24-8. I'm Erica. And I'm Allison. And before we start, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're enjoying Because the Beatles, feel free to leave us a preferably five-star review so other Beatle maniacs can find us. Also, don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. BC the Beatles everywhere. We'll be posting videos, photos, and more from this episode and beyond. So before we get to today's episode, we just want to address a few corrections from previous episodes. Just to be clear, Allison and I probably have three to four decades of experience studying the Beatles between the two of us. We care a lot about historical integrity. And a lot. A lot. We strive to be as accurate as possible. And like any good historians, we really regret errors when they occur. You know, the thing is, Eric and I are primarily writers. We have a lot of time to research. We obviously can fact check as we're going, but the podcast medium is not like that. We often record and try to get the episodes up as soon as possible to stay relevant, stay current, jump on the latest news. Surprisingly, the Beatles world moves pretty fast. Um, and we want to get the content to you. We do a lot of cool interviews and the things that you're hearing so far. So when that happens, you know, we sometimes miss things or misstate things and it just happens, you know, but thank you to our loyal listeners. You pointed out a few things that we'd like to address. First, in the Brian Epstein episode, I must have said that Paul McCartney sold the Beatles catalog to Michael Jackson. That is totally not correct. That did not come out right. Yeah. And we and we know that. <laughs> we do. We were discussing Paul's business acumen. And so I was referencing Paul's often told story that when he was working on the uh, Say 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 and the other collaborations with Michael Jackson, he gave him advice to get into the music licensing business. And in a vast simplification of that story, Michael Jackson took that advice to heart and apparently outbid Paul for the publishing rights of the Beatles songs. So it was not a sale from Paul to Michael in any way, nor was it something that Paul wanted to have happen. We regret the error. The second correction I want to address is in last week's Beatles Book Club episode, I mistakenly said that journalist and author Michael Braun was with the Beatles in 1963 during their first British tour. Yes, he was with them in 1963, in the fall of 1963, but that was not the Beatles' first tour. Technically, they first started touring in 1960 when they were known as the Silver Beatles as backup to the British singer Johnny Gentle, and their first official UK tour began February 2nd, 1963 with singer Helen Shapiro. If you hear something, you know, number one, know that it was not our intention. We strive to be completely like we're crazy about being historically accurate. But, you know, feel free to tweet us, comment, uh, DM us, email us, bcthebeatles at gmail.com. Happy to clarify anything you've got questions about um, or if you hear us make an error that is totally unintentional. to this episode, which is really exciting because it's all about our, our buddy, John Lennon. Yeah, um, it's Johnny's birthday. Beatles. It is, it's Johnny's birthday. Um, yeah, so this week in Beatles history, I guess that's probably our biggest thing is on October 9th, 1940, John Winston Lennon was born in Liverpool and he would have turned 78 years old this year. His mother and his father were at that point still together, but of course that didn't last very long. Um, his father was a sailor who traveled all around the world on merchant ships. He also traveled on passenger ships. He was a like a, a cabin boy kind of esque type deal. 
in and out of Liverpool a lot. So Julia was sort of not super interested in him beyond when they were together uh, before John was born. And of course, we all know that they did separate and Julia remarried. And then John went to live with his Aunt Nini and his Uncle George at Mendips. And we'll post some pictures of Mendips uh, on our Instagram for John's birthday. Uh, was just there. I was just there about a year ago, actually. I can't Aww. believe it's been a year. Uh, a year. Can't really? Wow. Yeah, since I've been to Liverpool. Wow. But uh, one of the most interesting stories around John's birth, and John himself would say, like, oh, I was born, you know, the night that Liverpool was being bombed and blah, 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 um, in World War II. Actually not. Um, according to a lot of biographers, uh, that didn't happen. Although some of them say, you know, it was a German air raid taking place in the night of his birth. And Mimi bravely ran out to uh, the hospital to be with Julio as she gave birth. And Mimi later said, I knew the moment I saw John in the hospital that I was the one to be his mother, not Julia. Does that sound awful? It isn't really, because Julia accepted it as something perfectly natural. She used to say, you're his real mother. All I did was give birth. Actually, Mimi, that sounds awful. It is awful. It is. It's sweet, (laughs) though. I don't (laughs) know. She's trying to sweeten the story of why she's raising John and make it clear that she loved him, which she did. Mimi loved she John. Loved she was in stern. In she was strict. In her own way. Yes. Yeah. But, you know. <laughs> I mean, you know, John was obviously really, really close to his uncle George. I mean, we talk a little bit later in the episode about the men in John's life. But, you know, Uncle George was really his main father figure because Alf or Fred, whoever you want to call his father, was in and out of his life and not obviously not stable and George was there until, unfortunately, he passed away. Um, a big blow to John. Yes. And then, of course, John lost his mother as well. But, yeah, Mimi was really kind of like his mother and his father, which mm-hmm. makes sense when you think about how how strict she was and how stern she was and her famous quote, you know, you'll never make money with the guitar, John. Um, <laughs> but, you know, incorrect Mimi, as it turns out. <laughs> Well, if anybody could have been up to the task of being both mother and father, it was probably maybe. Definitely. I agree. So that story is probably apocryphal, but the sentiment is there. Moving on to Beatles news, this week has been kind of crazy. Last week was kind of crazy as well. First of all, a little bit of BC the Beatles news, because the Beatles. Uh, We're on Spotify, which is exciting. Um, You know, we'll post the show link on our socials. We had it on our Instagram story earlier this week. Uh, You can also find us on Spotify by searching for BC the Beatles, because the Beatles on the app or on the desktop platform. You can mix us in with your Beatles playlist. Do that. Yeah. Which is so much fun. We'll just start building some playlists. Oh, we totally would, should. Yeah. If you want to hear us build some playlists or, you know, enjoy our playlists, let us know. But we'll probably do it anyway. Yeah. <laughs> this would be really fun. We already have our Modern McCartney playlist, which I think is quite good. We do. Yeah, we'll have to share it. And we definitely want to touch on that at some point as well. Mm-hmm. All right, so the next piece of news is unfortunately a very sad and sudden one. Jeff Emmerich, the legendary Beatles recording engineer, passed away last Tuesday, October 2nd, at the age of 72. Apparent cause was cardiac arrest. Jeff Emmerich started his career at 15 years old at EMI, started working with the Beatles a few months later, and by the time Revolver was being produced, he was the band's chief engineer. 
Um, he was experimental, he was daring, and he was open to finding any new method he needed to help the Beatles create previously unrecorded sounds and effects. He, along with George Martin, together were brilliant in creating the Beatles sound. Yeah, I loved um, at the fest, he was a guest in August at the Chicago Fest, and he talked about creating the effects for Tomorrow Never Knows, which is really, really fascinating. He won Grammys for Sgt. Pepper and Abbey Road, as well as Wings Band on the Run. He went on to record for artists like Elvis Costello, Supertramp, and Badfinger, but of course he will always be associated with and known for his legendary and groundbreaking work with the Beatles. If you want to know more about him, he published a book in 2006 detailing that time. It's called Here, There, and Everywhere. He was, of course, as Allison just said, headlining the Fest for Beatles fans last year, and he was supposed to be a guest at the 2018 um, Monmouth University White Album International Symposium in conjunction with the re-release. So Beatles community is very saddened by his loss. Right, and tributes have come in from all around. Uh, Paul had tweeted something, um, I think, the day after Jeff died, but he also said something over the weekend at um, ACL, which is really, really touching. And I always like to cite that Jeff had a hand in engineering one of my favorite albums, my probably my favorite Paul McCartney album, which is Flaming Pie. So definitely a really talented guy with great ears, you know, a lot of vision, um, really respected generally speaking in the Beatles community. Um, he was he was kind of a controversial figure as well, but I think, you know, he was a pillar. He was there, you know, he was in the room for so much of that. And it's so sad, very, very sudden. You know, it's really shocking. So, you know, rest in peace, Jeff Emmerich. Uh, you will be very, very missed. Well, onto something a little bit happier. I was really, really lucky about a week and a half ago now. Gosh, I don't even know what date is. Um, but <laughs> I was invited to go to Capitol here in Los Angeles to hear um, a bit of the White Album reissue at a listening party. Remember a couple of episodes ago, we posted, they were posting that cryptic post, can you take me back where I came from? Well, that was a thing that you got to go to. Yeah, I know. And I honestly, I didn't even know they were going to have one in Los Angeles until I got an email a couple of days uh, ahead of time. I knew they had done one in New York um, on the Monday, I believe, of that week. And then they were here. Giles Martin came to L.A. It was here Friday and did the listening at the Capitol Tower. Um, I mean, when I say I didn't sleep the night before, 100 percent, like I could not sleep. I was so excited um, because obviously any any opportunity to go to the Capitol Tower is a huge honor. And to be in that space where such history is made is amazing. Um, and so the listening party was actually in Studio A, um, which is, I believe, the largest of the studios on the first floor of the Capitol building. And it was just amazing. It was so fun to sit there for about an hour and a half and listen to some of the reissues, hear Giles Martin talk about some of the remixes and the demos and everything that's going to be included in the White Album box set. And, and I've got to say, I wasn't super psyched about this reissue. I mean, we, Erica and I both go crazy about the Sgt. Pepper remixes from uh, last year. But after hearing what he played us, I'm so, I cannot wait to hear the full package. He played us four or five of the Esher demos, which if you're unfamiliar with those, as don't feel bad if you are, because Giles Martin was also unfamiliar really? with what the Esher demo. Yeah, he said before he started this project, he had no idea what the Esher demos were. People kept asking him about the Esher demos, and he had no idea what oh, that God. was. I know. And I was like, what? <laughs> I'm like, that's probably, I mean, one of the most well-known anecdotes behind the uh, White Album, but... So the Easter demos, the legend behind them is the Beatles 
got together after they'd come back from Rishikesh and after they kind of had some time apart and they came together at George's house and Esher to play each other the demos that they'd created that ended up being the bulk of the White Album. Um, but so he played us some of those, the straight up demo demos. And I think um, back in USSR is already out. So that's mm-hmm. on Spotify or wherever. Um, he also played us, I, I think... Dear Prudence, I think, was one of the demos he played. Yeah, it's just he played as a real selection. Um, And then he played 15 or 20 remixes and some like different cuts of the tracks ended up on the album. And my favorite, um, I texted Erica, she couldn't believe it. Um, But my favorite thing that he played was actually um, a cut of Good Night. We all know how I feel about Ringo. Uh, But I think you love Ringo, actually. You're becoming a real fan. (sighs) No. That's incorrect. <laughs> but this uh, particular cut was amazing because it really showcased the harmonies of the backing vocals of the Beatles. And the story that Giles told about this particular cut is that this was after Ringo had quit um, and they had persuaded him to come back. So they all really, really rallied behind him to make this really beautiful harmonic lush arrangement and recording of good night and it's amazing like it almost brought tears to my eyes it was so gorgeous um and actually that was the one that everybody was talking about after the listening party was that particular cut so there's a lot to look forward to in this reissue and afterwards i got a chance to just like grab giles for a quick picture he is number i'm sorry but he's super attractive he's like a hottie um and he's (laughs) just very be passionate about what he does. Um, people are, you know, they're they're hot and cold on Giles and his producing. I I particularly love it. Um, I think it's really inventive. And one thing that he said, um, you know, he was talking about how Paul and Ringo are really his bosses. And if they don't like it, it doesn't go out. And one thing that kind of guides their philosophy is the Beatles were not conservative. They like to push the buttons and push, you know, the music further. And so Paul apparently has always encouraged Giles to do that with the Beatles music, just push it, like go further, like take it to new places, which I think is really cool to hear, especially when, um, you know, some of the remixes are so different than what we're used to hearing. It's anything like Sgt. Pepper. It's going to be amazing. Yeah. I know. It's going to be so great. I cannot wait. Um, It comes out on November 9th. So something to look forward to. And thanks for, uh, you know, Universal for having me. It was a really fun, really fun day. It was something that will definitely live in my memory for a long time. That is awesome. Yeah. Um, And in other news, we have three Yoko Ono related news pieces today. The first is that her latest album called Warzone is coming out October 19th. Yoko says about the album, the world is so messed up. Things are very difficult for everybody. It's a war zone we're living in. And the first single includes sounds of machine guns firing and animals crying out. So this is definitely Mm. uh, Yoko doing Yoko and, uh, you know, hitting those issues straight up. Uh, the track listing has some earlier things like her 1971 track now or never it does drop on october 19th but a new song has been released every tuesday on her website um, imaginepeace.com and on streaming services so uh, check it out awesome yeah the next yoko related news is that the 72nd street subway station in new york the bnc lines near her home the dakota that she shared with john uh, has just reopened after some renovations including some large wall murals from Yoko, a new work that's called Sky. So it's actually very, very 
pretty. Um, it's got mostly pictures of sky and clouds with some famous sayings from Yoko, like imagine peace and remember love. So it looks nice. I'm looking forward to checking it out. It looks very peaceful. And, you know, you can't really say that much about the New York City subway. Yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> um, one more piece of Yoko news. And let me just say, this world needs Yoko now more than ever. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think, you know, her her strong feminist viewpoint, Erica and I are both unapologetic feminists. And this next piece of news is quite controversial. Um, so this past week, Bette Midler tweeted something kind of controversial. Um, and it included a reference to a song by Yoko and John that we're going to just, we're going to paraphrase as Bette Midler tweeted it, um, but that, because we don't feel comfortable with its with its real title. So Bette Midler, um, she tweeted and then she deleted, women are the N-word of the world, which the song actually has a word. Again, we're not going to say it because we don't feel comfortable using that word. Um, raped, beaten, enslaved, married off, worked like dumb animals, denied education and inheritance, Enduring the pain and danger of childbirth and life in silence for thousands of years, they are the most disrespected creatures on earth. Um, obviously, this came because of the crazy political shit that's gone on this mm-hmm. week that we're not even going to get into. I can't even deal with it. Um, but she was, again, like she put in quotes the first line, which is the title of that song. Um, and as you can imagine, uh, it was not taken well by the Internet. Nope, not <laughs> Did not at all. like it. Did not like it. No, lots and lots of angry tweets saying that that word doesn't actually encompass the experience you're talking about because the African-American experience is very, very different and you cannot equate the two like that. Her second tweet that was also deleted uh, was, I gather I have offended many by my last tweet, women are the etc. It's a quote from Yoko Ono from 1972, which I never forgot. It rang true then and it rings true today, whether you like it or not. This is not about race. This is about the status of women, their history. So Beth's fighting back um, and using Yoko's words, which at the time I think were pretty revelatory. And that was an important step, I think, in the feminist movement. I don't agree that that's an appropriate statement anymore. I don't think we need to use that word. I think that we there are so many other better ways that we can use language to describe the issues. We don't need to use something to shock people to get our message across. Yeah, 100%. I think that was probably a big part of why they use that word, you know, with the song is that shock value draws attention to the cause. But unfortunately today, there's a lot of reasons to pay attention to this cause. Uh, So yeah, I definitely see where Bette Midler was coming from. I don't agree with the use of the word, but it was something that she did. Yeah. (laughs) Bette Midler is definitely an ally of women, of gay people, of minorities. I mean, she's always been. So I don't think there was any racist intent her saying this. I do think that though she was of the time that this came out, that this was a really strong attack. The National Organization for Women awarded that song with a positive image of women's citation. So it was pretty highly praised at the time. I think it's just that now there are better ways to say it and we don't need to be shocked into it anymore. As we're talking about John's music and Yoko's music, just another reminder that the reissued Imagine box set just came out last Friday. We mentioned it a couple episodes ago, too, uh, and with the remastered Imagine film, which is still kind of playing out in theaters. And if you have the box set, if you've heard it, 
um, let us know what you think. I'm really curious and we would love to chat about it with you on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or email us at bcthebeatles totally. at gmail.com. I saw Definitely. a preview for it the other day in the movies and I cannot find it near, oh, near cool. me. Like a, tra- like a trailer? An actual trailer, like the one that's online. Ah. It looked like it was gorgeous though, seeing it on the big screen. I just can't find anywhere near me that's playing it. I know. I I went to a movie, a screening on Saturday, and they had a like a a role playing before of like all their upcoming features and Imagine was on there, but it had already passed. And I was like, ah, I can't believe I missed it. Cause yeah, I think the last time I saw it, it was like a crappy old VHS copy. Yeah. Probably, (laughs) probably me too. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't seen it in so long. So that would have been really nice, but you know, check it out. Hopefully it's coming near you. Um, and don't miss it because I'm it. Yeah. It looks just stunning. This new print of it. And speaking of crappy VHS tapes, you probably have in yours or in your parents' basements. Or like, uh, you know, cryptically named files circulating the internet somewhere. The Beatles in 1969. (laughs) Exactly. Paul McCartney confirms that Beatles in 1969 does not need to be the title anymore because there will be a Let It Be film re-release for the 50th anniversary in 2020. Even... I know, me too, cannot wait. Even Paul, though, isn't quite sure exactly what's happening. He says, I tell you what I think it's going to happen. I think there may be a new version of it. That's kind of the latest gossip. <laughs> There's a He's lot of so footage. Cagey. Yeah. Paul. He knows. Well, who knows? I don't know. I, I'd imagine mm. it's probably a tough subject for him to look back on, too. Maybe. I don't know. Uh, one thing that Giles said at, at uh, the Capitol Tower was, you know, a lot of us think of the White Album as really the Beatles falling apart. But if you go back and listen to the to the stuff that was left on the cutting room floor and the, tra- the takes that weren't used in the studio chatter, you really see them coming together as a band. Obviously, I know, you know, when Let It Be was filmed, it was a whole different ball game. But who knows? I mean, we talked about it before. You know, if you recut Let It Be would it be a different story? Who knows? If Paul recut it to be something happy, that would be very weird. He would, though. He that likes revisionist Paul. history, but that's a bit crazy. <laughs> yeah, very a very Paul move. I'd love to see like a Paul cut as like a bonus on the DVD. <laughs> okay, and speaking of Paul, we have the winner of our Egypt Station Metro Card contest. Yay! Woohoo! And the winner of the Egypt Station Metro Card is Caitlin Larkin. Congratulations. Caitlin is an only an awesome BC The Beatles listener. She is also a YouTuber, and she has amazing videos about the Beatles, about vinyl, about classic rock. So check her out online. Yay, congrats. Yay. And one more piece of uh, housekeeping here. If you haven't already heard, last week we released our first Uh, book club episode take a listen to that if you haven't heard it but we're really excited to talk about our next book which is dreaming the beatles the love story of one band and the whole world by rob sheffield and rob sheffield is such a great rock writer he for years he was the only reason i subscribed to rolling stone this particular book is a collection of essays telling the story of what this ubiquitous band means to a generation who grew up with the beatles music on the parents stereos and their faces on t-shirts and the quote is from the book, you know, what do the Beatles mean today? They are, why are they more famous and beloved now than ever? And why do they still matter to us so much nearly 50 years after they broke up? 
Dreaming the Beatles tells the story of how four lads from Liverpool became the world's biggest pop group, then broke up, but then somehow just kept getting bigger. At this point, their music doesn't belong to the past. It belongs to right now. This book is a celebration of that music, showing why the Beatles remain the world's favorite thing and how they invented the future we're all living in today. We think that this is the type of topic that perfectly encompasses why we do this podcast. So what a great book to discuss next time we have a book club. Yeah, it's like the ultimate fan book written by somebody who's a really good writer who, you know, is has a seasoned rock journalist and who's a huge, huge Beatles fan. He, he also wrote a book about on Bowie a couple of years ago called On Bowie. <laughs> In fact, he actually interrupted the work on this book because he's such a David Bowie super fan. When Bowie passed away, he just had to do that. So funny. Yeah. And Rob Sheffield's also going to be at the uh, White Album International Symposium in Monmouth University, which is really exciting. Oh, cool. Yeah, he's going to be a guest. So. Check this book out. You can find it at your library. It's on Amazon, hard copy, on Kindle, um, and read along with us. Yeah. So our next book club date is November 5th. So get the book, read it along with us. Let us know if you have any questions that you want us to discuss on our episode. We'll send out reminders occasionally on the socials, and we'll see you there. Yeah, and if you post about reading the book, if you're reading along with us, use the hashtag Beatles Book Club, and we'll be checking it, and we'll chat about the book as we're reading it. Tomorrow is what would have been John Lennon's 78th birthday. It's hard to believe. Uh, so to celebrate, we're turning the spotlight onto his life and the age-old debate of whether he was more of a sinner or a saint. I mean, online, you see it everywhere. So we brought in one of our friends, John Lennon biographer and expert, Jude Sutherland Kessler. Jude is one of the best people on the planet to talk about this subject with us. She is the author of the John Lennon series, a proposed nine-volume historical narrative work on the life of John Lennon. And of course, John's mates, the Beatles. She has published the first four books in the series, taking John up to the end of 1964. And next week, she begins work on volume five, Shades of Life, which details 1965. Jude is also the official blogger for the Fest for Beatles fans and is a regular guest speaker at the Fest. She also loves writing for Rebeat Magazine and reading it too. Each year in September, Jude chairs the Beatles at the Ridge Symposium. In the 1990s, Jude spent seven years going back and forth to Liverpool, very lucky to do interviews for the John Lennon series. And this year, she's returning for the first time in 18 years and as an honorary scouser, thanks to uh, our buddy too, David Bedford. And she can't wait to get back home to Liddy. And welcome, Jude. We're so excited to have you. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Allison and Erica, both for having me on the show. This is a topic that's extremely important to me. Right after John's death, of course, he was lifted up as a saint, which he would have hated. And then in the years that have followed, as historiography will do, things have begun to change. And he's being vilified as a sinner now and is doing things that were very inappropriate. So I think this is a really important topic to broach and look at the man within his time frame and who he really was. I thank you for giving me the chance to talk about this. We're really excited to address this, too, because it seems like a very black and white debate, not a whole lot of gray area, which I think most human beings probably fall somewhere in between. What drew you to John as a person and a subject for this extensive research biography series? Well, of course, you know, I'm of the era of Beatle fans, and I tell the story in volume four, should have known better about the day that I came to school and my friends gave me until recess to fall in love with one of the Beatles. And (laughs) I I, I mean, they're like, this is, these are the Beatles you have till recess to fall in love with one. I was like, seriously, that's like two hours. But 
I knew nothing about the Beatles. I was a very studious bookworm of a girl. And just looking at the picture for two hours, my initial reaction was to pick George. And I could tell when I said that, that they were very disappointed, didn't think that's who I was going to pick. <laughs> so I was like, well, okay, can I have overnight to think about it? And I went home and called the big sisters of a lot of my friends and talked to them about the Beatles, found out that John was the leader, he formed the band, that he was the smart Beatle. And the next day I came back, got off the bus and said, I've changed my mind. This is the one I want, John Lennon. And they were like, we knew it. That's the one we knew you'd pick. And it was John ever since. And, you know, as I found out about his story and found out that his life was as difficult as it was, I began to fall not for John Lennon, the Beatle, but for John Lennon, the little boy that no one really loved and that everyone pushed aside in my first book should have been there was not about the fact that you should have been there for the Beatles, you should have been there for the 60s, but that all of the people that should have been there for him mm -hmm. were not. And yet he found a way to go on. He found a way to make his life a success, despite the fact that everything terrible that could have happened to a little boy and to a teenager happened to John. Now, how did you decide to write about John in the very special way that you do? It's called a historical narrative. The way that the Greeks used to tell history, they knew that people would remember history better if it was told as a story. You stick to the facts, you don't change the facts, you footnote everything, you document everything. I mean, I try to really dig deep. Like I sent Bill Harry all the chapters that were written with him in it. And he came back the very first chapter and said, okay, Jude, you have me and you crack, but you have me in the wrong room. I didn't sit in the front room. I sat in the back room. I sat under the painting of Lord Nelson. You have me drinking ale. I only drank bitter. So I dig deep. I go into the weeds. Although you read it, it reads like it's a novel. It is all written factually. Each sentence is footnoted. I've talked to numerous people. I have over 150 sources. Most chapters have 40 to 50 sources each. I try to really stick to the facts, but tell it to you as if you were there. And it's so effective. I love these books. And one of my favorite parts about the books is seeing the footnotes and being able to really think about the history as I'm reading it. I love doing it. It's very slow because you write a sentence, then you stop and you footnote it. And then you write the next sentence. And if I ever get to the point where I'm on a roll and I write a whole paragraph or two paragraphs, and then I have to go back and document it, I could kick myself because that's very difficult to do. So it is a slow, slow process. What are some of the challenges researching John's life? Because I imagine his life, uh, imagine, no pun intended, uh, mm. his life would be some <laughs> special challenge to, to write about as opposed to maybe the other Beatles. Well, of course, the initial challenge with Should Have Been There, Volume 1, was getting the facts. Because before 1961, nothing was really recorded about the Beatles. And so I had to talk to the headmaster at... Corey Bank Grammar, John's high school, had to talk to Dave Binion, who was the prefect or the head boy and get his stories, had to look through the infraction book. And you would see that every single day that John was in high school, he was in detention for <laughs> unscrewing the chalkboard from the wall so that it would fall to the floor when the professor would write on it or putting the garbage can on top of the desk. And when the professor would take it down, of course, garbage would go everywhere for Classic Sky John. Yeah, skiving <laughs> off, smarting off, drawing a caricature. I read early letters. I read family letters. I talked to Julia Baird. I talked to John's Uncle Charlie. I interviewed people that 
early band members, of course, Alan Williams, their first manager, everyone that John went to school with and cousins. And so that was the hardest part, getting the stories when there was no documentation. After that, when there was documentation, it's sorting through the facts. Let's just take Paul's 21st birthday party when John Mm -hmm. got into that fight with Bob Wooler. First of all, people call it the trip to Barcelona. Barcelona was one of 14 cities that Brian and John visited on the Spanish Riviera. They were there for two weeks and they had wonderful experiences and they got to be extremely close. So when Bob Wooler, and I talked to Bob, made the snarky comment to John about his Spanish honeymoon and John was already drinking. He was a bad drunk. We all know that. And he took it offensively and he hit Bob. And I said, Bob, what specifically did you say to make John so mad? And he said, I'm taking that to my grave, but I'll tell you, I shouldn't have said it. So whatever it was, it wasn't nice. And John hit him. You go back and look at the end of that chapter at the way that story mushroomed. It went from hitting him to hitting him and breaking his ribs. And then it went to breaking his ribs and giving us a beer concussion. And then it went to John picked up a shovel and beat him with it. Oh my God. Yeah, it mushrooms and it changes. And so you have to dig to get the facts. You've got to dig through the myths and the rumors and the exaggerations to get to the truth. That's the hardest part. And that sort of leads into our topic because I imagine, again, no pun intended, uh, I need to strike that word from my vocabulary for this, for this episode. Please. Uh, I will. I'll try. Um, One of the things with John, I'm sure, is trying to find the truth in whether he was this horrific, stereotypically bad rock star type, or if he was the savior of the world, peace-loving, hippie that people love to deify him as these days. Let's talk about some of the commonly held beliefs about John Lennon on both sides. Let's start with Sinner. So one of the things that's so commonly mentioned, especially now on social media, is that he was a wife beater. Okay, so Cynthia wrote two books about her marriage to John, Twist of Lennon, written very close to the time that they were divorced, and it is PC, very tamped down, And it's written before she really has time to think this all over. It's written to sell. And she says almost nothing bad about John at all. It's a very endearing, loving, sweet story of their marriage. 2005, she's had plenty of time to think it over. And she writes her second book called John. I went through the entire book again today for the millionth time to pick out the one incident that's in there that leads to this claim of John being a wife beater. It's found on page 37, and this is a 300-page book that tells story after story of happiness, togetherness. He loved her very much. They're very close. This book is full of wonderful stories, but on page 37, it says, Stuart and I got on well. One night, we were at a party, and John went mad when someone told him that Stuart and I were dancing together. As soon as I saw the look on John's face, we stopped dancing, and as so often before, and we'll get into this later about the fact that John has no self-confidence, no self-image, I reassured John that it was him that I loved. So the next day at college, Liverpool College of Art, he followed me to the girls' loo in the basement. When I came out, he was waiting with a dark look on his face. Before I could speak, he raised his arm. He hit me across the face. 
knocking my head into the pipes that ran down the wall. Without a word, he walked away. And it goes on to say that she was absolutely furious and ended up breaking up with him for several weeks after that happened. That's the incident. Is that appropriate? No. Are you supposed to hit someone in the face? No. Is that to be looked over or forgotten? No. But it certainly wasn't him beating anyone up. It's not being a wife beater. There's one other incident that I couldn't find where he slapped Cynthia in the face. But how that got stretched into him being a wife beater, Cynthia didn't put up with that. She immediately broke up with him. And John after that was very respectful of her. And I can't remember when the other incident was, but he never beat her up. He never did anything. He hit her in the face is what he did. It's not to be excused, but I think it's been over-exaggerated. You don't think that it's possible that Cynthia sort of picked that incident and pulled that one and said, okay, I'll throw that in to just give context to the the notion that John was a wife beater, but there might've been more that she didn't include. Absolutely besides not. The, besides she the was... one that you mentioned. The last page of this book, this is a very dark book, even though there were beautiful, wonderful instances, this is how she ends the book. I never stopped loving John, but the cost of that love, and she's talking about the pain of the divorce, has been enormous. Someone asked me recently whether if I'd known at the beginning what lay ahead, I would have gone through it. I had to say no. And of course, I could never regret my wonderful son. But the truth is, if I had known as a teenager what falling for John Lennon would lead to, I would have turned right around and walked away. And the pain that she endured, I mean, she loved John for years and years and years and years after they split up. The pain that she endured was very real. It was very viable. It was a hurt when someone cheats on you and leaves you for, for someone else. That hurts. And she would have said, she's ready to tell the real story, not a tamp down story in her 2005 book. And those, she chooses two incidents and that's one of the two. And both times he slapped her in the face. So there's really no other documented stories about him beating up any no. other woman. Well, I don't know about other women, I, but I mm -hmm. know that that's what Cynthia has to say. She's graphic. She tells the story. She says she was shaken. She said that she called Phyllis McKenzie after he hit her and said, as much as I love him, I'm done with him. I'm walking away. And they were broken up for two weeks. So that's it. I don't think that's a wife beater. Are there any rumors or anything that he ever hit Yoko? Let me put it this way. he I don't think he would have lived to tell about it. That would be my thought. Yeah. Also. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't think Yoko would have put up with that. No. no, and May Pang doesn't report any time when John hit her. I mean, they had a very close relationship. And as violent as John was when he was drinking, she doesn't mention it. So I think people want to exaggerate stories and they want them to be bigger. It's not a good story. It's not a pretty story. It's not an acceptable story, but it isn't wife beating. Another rumor, another speculation that John never actually loved Cynthia and he married her because he got her pregnant. What about that one? Well, when given one single day off in Paris, he chooses to come home to his wife and to spend the one day he has off with her. He insists that she comes along with him on that U.S. tour. He could have said, oh, great, three weeks in America without the wife. That's not what he said at all. He wanted her there with him. Tony Barrow says... John loved Cynthia. She was his center. Larry Kane says John's peace was found in Cynthia. When he was speaking with her, when he was talking with her, he centered, he became himself again. 
he loved her very much. And he even gave up living in London, which he adored because he could go to the Bag of Nails or the Scotch of St. James after work at night. He loved her enough to move out to Kenwood where she would be safe. He was an hour out of the city. I never wanted to leave, never wanted to give up Emperor's Gate, even though it was a really dangerous place to live and move away from London. But he did it because of her. What I think pulled the two of them apart was not the fact that he never loved her. He absolutely loved her. It was drugs. And Cynthia talks about that in the book. She says that she and John became very, very distant she says that the chasm between us was widening. I still wanted a stable family life, a loving relationship with John, but he was restless. I knew that the barrier of drugs had been placed between us. Cynthia didn't want to experiment with drugs. It made her really sick. She didn't want to do it. John was heavily involved with drugs, and that opened the door for what came next. And I would think that another argument for why that isn't true is those letters that he used to write to her. Before the Christmas cards, the beautiful drawings, yeah. He absolutely loved her. And every time that I hear him saying, I'm in love for the first time, don't you know it's going to last? I shout, jerk, because (laughs) um, that wasn't true. And it's been this myth that he never loved Cynthia has been so well promoted. I dedicated the last book to Cynthia. She loves you. It's all about their relationship. She is all through should have known better. On the UK tour of 1964, he comes home 10 times. He gets Brian to get him a car and drive him home 10 times on the UK tour because he wants to spend the night with his wife. On the same note of John only married Cynthia because she got pregnant, you know, there's so much made of John's early relationship with Julian. You know, I know later on they sort of repaired their relationship, thank goodness. But, you know, there's a famous John quote that says, Julian was born out of a back room at a bar out of a whiskey bottle. Is there a truth to that? Was John actually a great father early on? John wasn't a great father. John wasn't there. You know, you look at John's world when Yoko comes along. They've quit touring. He's in studio. He's able to have her come along with him everywhere he goes. When Cynthia and Julian were around, he was gone all the time. In 1964, they make a hard day's night. And when he comes home from making the film, he gets home. The film ends at five o'clock. Then he goes to record TV shows like Ready, Steady, Go or Thank Your Lucky Stars. And he doesn't get home until 10. When he gets there, Tom Mashler from the publishing company is waiting for him to finish up in his own right and to do the illustrations. They work until midnight. John gets to sleep until five when he has to get up and go to hair and makeup because they have to begin filming at 8 a.m. So he doesn't see Cynthia even when he's at home. Then they go on the world tour. They do five seaside summer sessions in the summer of 1964 and record the soundtrack for Hard Day's Night. Then he leaves on the North American tour and is gone over a month. He has five days off before he starts making Beatles for Sale and is in London making that LP. And then he goes on the UK tour and is gone until the time that he starts the Beatles Christmas show. He's not there. He's not a good father. He's not ever there. When he's there, he's tired. He's worn out. He's irritable. There's one incident where Julian spills milk on the table and John shouts at him and Cynthia jumps up and says, don't take it out on a little boy just because you're tired and whisks him off. But then there's that letter from John when he's gone in January of 1965 that says, 
I'm so sorry. I love Julian. I don't know how to be a father. I never had a father. I don't know what to do. I'm just a jerk and I'm sorry. That's the phrase that John says most often. You go back and listen to his music. It's constantly, I didn't mean to hurt you. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Whatever language he wants to say it in, he keeps apologizing because he's not a good father, but he doesn't really have the opportunity to be the way he had the opportunity to be a good father with Sean. It seems like there is this dichotomy with John between the things that he does, the way he lashes out in anger, and this painful self-awareness of what he did. It shows up there, it shows up with Cynthia, and I think it also shows up in this other area where he's often vilified, which is that he, he mocked people with physical or mental disabilities, even on stage. What was that all about? This is, I'm so glad you asked this question. This is the one I really wanted to answer the most. First of all, you're right, Erica. There is no one who hated John more than John. I'm a loser and I'm not what I appear to be. He's a real nowhere man living in his nowhere land. I mean, John tells you over and over that he can't stand himself. He never loved John Lennon because after all, his mother didn't love him, so he thought for ages and ages and ages. She had two children, two little girls, and she was fine with keeping them, but she didn't keep him. So mm -hmm. it must not be children that she didn't love. It was him. And every time that he was expelled from kindergarten as a little boy, he realizes he's no good. You know, sometimes I think I'm Christ Almighty, and sometimes I think I'm a sinner. He would never have wanted to be a saint if anything, he thought he was a vast center of no worth. But what he was doing on stage, when you see him doing that stomp on the ground and that clap that he's doing, mm -hmm. although, let me say before I tell you my interpretation of that, is that I think it's so unfair for people to judge someone in 2018 against the standards of 1959, 60, 61, 62, 63. You go back and look at what, what was acceptable in those days, what people did in those days. For example, if you went to a restaurant with a man in 1964, he would order the meal for you, sometimes without even asking you what you wanted, because that was the gentlemanly thing to do. If that happened now, if someone ordered for you and didn't give you a chance to order, we would be, well, that's demeaning. That's not the way you should treat a woman an equal. But that was the standard set back in 1964. So a lot of the things that people did back then by today's standards, seem to be wrong and rude and unacceptable. But it's fine for us to vilify people for doing things 50 and 60 years ago that weren't even looked upon as bad. So we have John on stage doing that stomp and the clap and making that face. He is not mocking people with physical defects. He is mocking the fans. When they started in December 27th of 1960, the first incidents of girls storming the stage and screaming at the Beatles at Litherland Town Hall. That night, it was probably the most exciting thing in the world to have girls scream while you were singing. All through 1961, 62, 63, the screaming was probably wonderful. The throwing of jelly beans, however, which were hard rocks, one hit Paul just below his left eye and really had it hit any higher, it would have blinded him. These girls are throwing lipstick cases, they're throwing bras, they're throwing underwear, they're throwing purses. In one incidence in Chicago, they threw a raw steak, and in Milwaukee, they threw a can of tinned 
fruit. What if that and hit them? That's a weapon. It's very, very dangerous. And they're not listening to the songs. John complained over and over and over about the fact they're not listening to me. They're not listening. He never wanted people to scream over the music and not listen and urinate on themselves and tear their hair and rip their faces with their nails. And so what he's doing is he's showing them what they look like. In Indianapolis on the 1964 tour, the crowd sat and they were respectful. They screamed in between songs and they cheered and they clapped and they stood up. But when the Beatles started singing, they listened, they sang along with the songs. And it was the happiest night of the tour for John. That's what he had always dreamed of. He dreamed of people listening to his music. And although Cynthia would reassure him, John, they're listening to you on the records. They hear you on the radio. They're trying to have an experience with you. It still annoyed the hell out of him. And that's what he was doing is showing them, look, this is how demented, you look demented. He wasn't saying anything about people with physical disabilities. He was showing them that they look like mad people. So was it a nice thing to do? Uh, no, it also wasn't nice to shout, shut up at them, but he did. He was, he was sick of it. So we haven't walked in John's shoes. We haven't faced Beatlemania. We haven't been shoved into police cars and ambulances and laundry carts to get away from crazed fans. He was just fed up. I almost wonder if part of this rumor is stoked by the fact that you hear about when the Beatles would be presented with these disabled children or mentally handicapped children by their parents or by tour promoters in different cities. And it's written in a bunch of different texts that made them so uncomfortable to be just sort of thrust in the face of these kids. Yeah, I think Paul and George and Ringo handled it much better. But John tells you he's crippled inside. Mm -hmm. He tells you that he fears that you will find out. The reason he's ugly to people initially, and, and he respects you if you're ugly right back to him, is he doesn't want you to find out who he is. He doesn't want you to see that he has things wrong with him, that he is crippled, that he did not grow up with parents, that his parents, for very complicated reasons, foisted him off on an aunt and uncle to rear, and that the aunt, whom he would ask every single day, Aunt Mimi, why are you here every day when I come home from school, wouldn't say, because I love you. She would say, because it is my duty to do so. So he's a wounded animal. He is, I don't understand if we saw someone who had say Parkinson's because my father-in-law had Parkinson's. So I feel like I can talk about this. You would never go up to a Parkinson's patient and say, what's wrong with you? Stand up straight, quit shaking. Don't shuffle your feet. You feel sorry for him. Just because John's wounds aren't visible, you can't see that he felt like he was unlovable because his mother didn't want him and his dad sailed away. He had no idea his dad wrote numerous letters to him after he left him in Julia's care, thinking he was living with his mother, with Julia, not knowing that he's living with Mimi and George. Mimi tears the letters up. Mm -hmm. She never tells John that his father wrote to him. If that was the last of his tragedies, that would be enough to scar 
him for life. But the fact is, after Uncle George dies, Julia comes back into his life, becomes his best friend, encourages him to skip school, to come to her house, hang out with her, play rock and roll records, teaches him to play the banjo, tells him he's got this music in his bones. He's destined to be famous and have a great band. He buys into it. He forms the quarrymen. They rehearse in Julia's bathroom. He's inseparable. He spends all of his time with her. And then she's hit by a drunk driver and killed. And once again, is wrenched away from him, but this time forever. He starts drinking. He starts doing any kind of drug that he can find, a, a menthol inhaler or whatever that he can come across in Liverpool because he's broken. He's broken. And he's lost his uncle George. They don't let him be there for George's funeral. They don't even tell him George is dying. They send him away to Scotland. When he comes home, George is buried. He never gets a chance to say goodbye. Then he loses his mother. And two or three years later, he finds someone that he loves. That's his soulmate that he clings to, Stu Sutcliffe. And Stu dies of a cerebral hemorrhage. John is a broken man. And why is that illness, that wound, not as viable, not as credible or important as a physical wound. He's got a tiny bit of a life raft that he hangs on to to keep himself going day after day. And he does keep going. He takes the wounds, he takes the pain, he makes it into the soundtrack of our lives. He wails at the microphones of the world for his lost mother. And he makes it something that we cherish to this day. But why are his wounds not as important? And we tell him, hey, get over it. Don't have a bad attitude. He's the walking wound. Such a hard thing to deal with, especially in the days before mental health and mental health care was really recognized as important. Yeah, he did the best he could. He never quit. When people ask me, you know, why do you spend 33, 34 years of your life writing the John Lennon series? It's not because he was a great musician, which he was, or a great artist, which he absolutely was, or even the fact that he was a writer and wrote two award-winning books, or that he was a champion of peace in his later years, or that he stood up for Irish freedom, marched at the head of 5,000 people on BOAC, got banned from the BBC because he, he wrote two songs in support of Irish freedom. None of that. It's because I respect this man who had every single reason to be bitter and cynical and give up, but he never quit. He kept going. And I think that's a good transition because, you know, you take this whole part of John's early life and everything that shaped him into what he was and what he became. And then you look at him later as he's held up as this patron saint of peace and love. And that makes some people say John Lennon was a hypocrite. Yeah, he one of my favorite John Lennon quotes, and I use it almost every single day, is I love mankind, it's people I can't stand. Mm. <laughs> and on a case-by-case basis, John really was irritated with a lot of people. He he didn't have a lot of patience for people who were not bold or sharp. I mean, he, he gave Tommy Moore, who was their drummer when they went to Scotland on the Johnny Gentle tour, he gave him one hell of a time. Tommy Moore walked away and they begged him to come play another gig with them after they got back to Liverpool. And he said, I'll never have anything to do with that John Lennon again. John was mean to him because he wasn't very smart. But 
he did love mankind. When the Beatles went to play Jacksonville in 1964, it's well known that they put into their contract that they wouldn't play for a segregated audience. And mm -hmm. if they tried to place token Negroes, as they called them back in 1964, into the audience, uh, he would know it and they wouldn't perform. He championed the rights of women after Yoko came along. I'm sure Cynthia was shocked to see how much he championed the rights of women. He stood up for the underdog and he certainly stood up for the rights of the IRA and Sean Fain and Irish freedom. But on a case-by-case -case basis, John could be hard to get along with. So his quote, I love mankind is people I can't stand. That, that kind of told you all you needed to know about John. Now that advocacy and, and the things that he did that were good and humanitarian, it kind of leads to the other side of the coin, which is people deified him. People looked at him as a Jesus figure. Can you talk a little bit about his reputation as a saint and how that may not be correct either? Yeah, he certainly was no saint. And I, I think if you had given him a choice of whether he wanted to be known as a sinner or a saint, he would have quickly chosen sinner. He was a tough Northern man from Liverpool who tried at the age about 10 or 11 to quit cussing. He and Pete Shotton decided they were going to give it up. They lasted about an hour. And John said, this is effing <laughs> ruining long, my huh? life. Yeah. And yeah, we got to go back to it. I feel um, you, John. Yeah. Yeah, I just, same. yeah. No way. He wasn't going to give up any of the, when Brian said, you guys have got to quit smoking because it's really bad image for the kids. They didn't quit. John drank and drank too much. He caroused with a bunch of women he shouldn't have been with. I mean, he came on to Ronnie Spector. She talks about it. He had a relationship with Robert Freeman's wife, Sonny, so much so that they came up to the Emperor's Gate flat and told Cynthia to leave the room. And Cynthia could hear them shouting and fighting. And when she came back into the room, Sonny was crying. Robert was red in the face. And two weeks later, Robert and Sonny filed for divorce. And she said to John, what's going on? He said, it's nothing you need to know about. Just, you know, leave it and walked out of the room. John was not a saint. He had good and he had bad. I had one person on Amazon write a terrible review of She Loves You. And they said, this woman hates John Lennon. She puts him in the worst possible light. Someone needs to write a biography of John who loves him. Well, Gee, I've given 34 years to write his life story. So I'm going to tell the truth. John was neither saint nor sinner. He was just a man. He had a lot of bad, but he had a lot of baggage. Do I give him a pass because he had a lot of baggage? My father, in his later years, because he fought World War II and had been right next to the big guns, was 85% deaf. He had macular degeneration, and he was 90% blind. And he got to where he was pretty mean, especially to my mom. And I would say, mother, you don't have to take that. And she would say, Jude, listen to me. He has three things against him. He's blind, he's deaf, and he is old. You need to cut him some slack. Well, John had something even worse than blind and deaf. He felt unloved. He always felt that he wasn't good enough. He wasn't up to anybody's standards, not even his own. And so lots of times he was mean and he was caustic and he would try to jab at you before you could jab at him. 
he was just a man and he was a man who went on despite all of the things he was struggling with. So do I think we should give him a pass? I think we should not only give him a pass, I think we should give him our respect. Do you think that he, over time, evolved past that a little bit? Because by the time, you know, he's making double fantasy, he had gone through the period of being a house husband, raising Sean, and he and Yoko had repaired their marriage. Do you think he was a little bit more comfortable in his skin? Do you think he was more grown up by that point? Let's just say he was still having some serious problems. Mm, I guess I'll we'll have to wait to read that in uh, a later volume. Yeah, it's uh, it's not a, as pretty a story as one would be led to believe. Interesting. Oh, that's a shame. Yeah. One of the arguments is that John, we already talked about the myth that he didn't love Cynthia and Julian, but he was super devoted, you know, to Yoko and Sean. I think he was super devoted to Sean for sure. And I think that his relationship with May Pang, which people have tried to diminish into a lost weekend, which was anything but a weekend. I mean, it was over a year was a very sincere and devoted relationship. I think she was so good for him. She got him to start writing again. She got him to meet with Cynthia and to heal their wounds and to get over their differences. She encouraged him to spend time with Julian. There were so many positive things that came out of that relationship, but alas and alack, it did not last. I always feel like one of the tragedies, but almost one of the comforts in when thinking about John's murder was that there is this impression that, oh, he, at least he found peace. It's even more tragic mm-hmm. that perhaps he did not. And that is just an oversimplification of something that we saw in the media and something that maybe they tried to communicate through double fantasy and some of the I was gonna say, publicity around that. that. We probably could have picked up through Double Fantasy because John had so many sort of weirdly looking back these prophetic songs, like just like starting over. And he had told, I think, Playboy, you know, life begins at 40 and all these different things. So, yeah, it's definitely that's a pervading feeling that John had reached this certain level in his life by that time. One other thing that we always see in the media about John Lennon is just an abundance of quotes, mostly not said by John Lennon. It seems that we, as a culture, tend to map things onto John. I don't know if anybody gets more misattributed quotes than him than maybe Abraham Lincoln. There's so many out there. (laughs) I love that. Well, some of them are good that he didn't say, like that one about when I was five years old and the teacher said, what is the meaning of life? And I said it was to be. I hate that one. I hate that one. Here's a typical one. This is the 1964, and and people can check me on this by going to YouTube and looking up the Cincinnati press conference because every bit of it is on YouTube. So this is how it goes. Reporter number four, who is a real jerk, to the Beatles. You four ought to be able to handle the crowds without all the police presence. Why don't you just walk right through? And George, who is ticked off, says, well, you can't go leaping into a crowd of 30,000, can you? And Paul says, you can't go up the middle, you know. George says, they pull you apart, you see. So for everybody's sake, and the reporter interrupts him and says, well, you ought to be able to handle it. And George says, well, maybe you could because you're fatter than us. Well, John doesn't say a word. So a few minutes later, another reporter, same same conference, Cincinnati says, what excuse do you have for your collar length hair? John shrugs and says, it just grows out of our heads. <laughs> Paul says, 
we don't need an excuse. You need an excuse. Well, the next day in the Cincinnati paper, guess who got blamed for both of those snarky comments? Oh, God. Yep. That's, That's crazy. Yeah. John Lennon insulted a reporter by saying, you need an excuse and you're fatter than us. Yeah, he got in trouble for both of those. Is that because the reporter maybe couldn't tell them apart? I really don't know why all he was always a target, but he knew it. He knew it the minute it happened. He's like, oh, no, here we go. This is going to be reported as something I did. Always. It always was. And of course, more recently, the one that I hear repeated all the time, and you do too, is John saying, Ringo isn't the best drummer in Liverpool. He isn't even the best drummer in the Beatles. Well, okay. I have to stop you here because I actually said that, I think a few episodes ago, and I attributed that to John. So I am ready Jude, for you to school me. <laughs> I, I can't. Mark Lewis and schooled us all. As he always does because he knows everything. He does. Everything. Lewis he, said he does. God. Yes. He proved that that quote was attributed to Jasper Carrot, a comedian, in 1983. And when he heard it, Mark Lewis said, I knew it was something John would never say. In the anthology, this is what John has to say. Ringo's a damn good drummer. He was always a good drummer. He's not quote unquote technically good, but I think Ringo's drumming is underrated the same way that Paul's bass is underrated. I think Paul and Ringo stand up anywhere with any of the rock musicians. Hey, if I'm not wrong, I think that was a compliment, Paul. He had a lot of respect for Ringo. He did. He did. And that, despite the fact that he was very close friends with Pete Best, when Paul and George approached John about getting rid of Pete Best, he staunchly supported Pete. He and Pete were good friends in Hamburg. They hung around together. They got on well. And only during the week that Cynthia found out she was pregnant and John and Cynthia are rushing to get married, is that chink big enough in John's armor for them to finally get what they wanted and to and to convince John to get rid of Pete and bring Ringo into the band? Right thing to do. Absolutely right thing to do. But John always said, it's many, many times, it was the jerkiest thing that we ever did. It was the meanest thing we ever did. And he regretted that they didn't tell Pete to his face. In fact, that night at the Cavern Club, the night before Pete's going to get sacked, he's talking about buying a new car in the band room. And John says to him, I wouldn't do that if I were you. Don't, don't, oh. yeah, don't go out and buy a car. Yeah, it, you know, it, it, it just is not a good thing. But he did. I mean, he loved Ringo very much. What he came to find out after Ringo's hair was cut in the embassy, then he was knocked down in Dallas and really almost killed going into the back of the hotel in Dallas. And he was realizing, hey, this kid is sensitive. He's sensitive the way I'm sensitive. The two of us are the ones that get our feelings hurt. We're the ones that have things that we're carrying around that hurt us. George was a stronger character than either one of them. He was much tougher, much stronger. Paul, definitely the strongest of the four, able to take hurts and wounds and just go on. So John felt a real kinship with Ringo. We really liked him. I have one last question for you, Jude. Yeah. How should we look at John right now? He's so complex. There's so many misstatements about him in the media and the press and books. How do you look at John and how do you believe we should look at John? I think we should look at him like we look at all of us. Every day, all of us wake up 
and we intend to do no harm. We wake up, we want to live a good day, we want to have a fulfilled life, we want to do our work, we want our work to be meaningful, we want people to like us, we want to like them, we want to get along, but how many times every day does that not turn out the way we want it to? And John did the best he could with the tools he had. He tells you in the end of his life, it's not loving that I'm expert in. How can I give something that I never had? He has such a dearth of experience with being loved that it's very hard for him to be loving. He mouths off. He says things he shouldn't say. He's just a person, a person who tried to do the best he had with, with what he was given. And as wounded as he was, I mean, the parents leaving him, the not hearing from his dad, the Mimi being all about decorum and rules instead of love, George, his only friend, his only ally, his only parent, dying when he's 14 and a half years old, right when he needed that male role model, Julia coming into his life, befriending him and then dying, Stu coming into his life and then dying. It's a wonder he made it through the night. And yet he did. And so we just need to look at him as a survivor, as someone determined to go on. And in that, I think he did a hell of a job. I would agree. And Jude, thank you so, so much for being our guest today. This has been amazing. Tell everybody how they can find out more about your work and your writing and the books. They can go to johnlennonseries.com. You can read a sample chapter from each book, purchase the book. You can also get it on amazon.com or at the Fest for Beatles fans, thefest.com. I have a monthly newsletter and I write the blog for the Fest for Beatles fans. In fact, the one that's going to come out next week is all about John, kind of sums up what we've been saying today. So uh, I would love to, I write to every single person who buys a book. I write a special inscription. I try not to ever write the same thing twice. Try to write something special to each person to get to know each reader. And I would love to meet you and share John's life story with you. Wonderful. And you also have a podcast too with Lena Stagg, right? We we do. We have a show called She Said, She Said. We do comparisons and contrasts. Like right now we're comparing Help and Hard Day's Night. So we do that every other Monday at 4 p.m. Central on Blog Talk Radio. Oh, fantastic. Great. Awesome. Well, thanks again. And uh, happy birthday, John. Happy birthday, John. Thank you for sharing this with me. I really appreciate it. These are such important questions. And I wanted to answer these more than any other questions I've been asked about, John. So I appreciate you being brave enough and bold enough to get up there and ask them. Thank you. And thank you for your time. There's nobody we'd want to talk about, John, with more than with you. Thank you, Erica. (laughs) Thank you both. Thanks. Bye. And we're back and we end our show as always with our favorite beetle related thing of the week. Allison, what's yours? Well, mine's kind of a cop out because we already talked about it, <laughs> but I can't not choose going to the Capitol Tower listening to the White Album remixes with Giles Martin. That's sort of like my Beatles highlight of the year, but I'll just keep it to this week. So that would be hands down my favorite Beatles related thing of the week. Yeah, that could be your favorite Beatle related thing for a long time if that yeah. happened to you. <laughs> Yeah, I think I'll pretty much surpass kind of anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
but you know, what is your favorite Beatles related thing of the week, Erica? Mine spans across another fandom that I love dearly, which is Doctor Who. If you don't find me here podcasting, you might find me at a Comic-Con doing Doctor Who cosplay. I do like to do that. And this week was the premiere of season 11 of the rebooted Doctor Who with the new Doctor, who for the first time in its over 50-year history is a woman. Yay! <laughs> so it's Congrats, Doctor Who. Yes. And I'm not going to spoil anything, but she's wonderful watch it even if you have never seen doctor who just just watch it just watch it it's great she's so good um so it got me thinking about all the connections between doctor who and the beatles there are so many they started at about the same time paul got interested in avant-garde music when he was in bbc studios and he heard them putting together the doctor who theme song for the original series both the ninth doctor and the twelfth doctor played beatles in other movies respectively the ninth doctor played john in lennon naked and the twelfth doctor peter capaldi played george in john and yoko a love story but this particular obsession this week centers around the first Doctor series when the Doctor was played by William Hartnell the series was called The Chase and part of the convoluted plot was they wanted to get to the present which at that point was uh, 1965 so to prove that they got back there he put on his little monitor to see what was going on in the outside world and it showed a clip of the Beatles playing Tickets to Ride on an episode of Top of the Pops the very interesting thing about this other than you know being giddy when your two fandoms collide and it's fun is that because of the way BBC dealt with their film, they actually recorded over this episode of Top of the Pops. So the Beatles' appearance was lost, except for this tiny little snippet that appeared on Doctor Who because it was in this little monitor. So if you watch that episode of Doctor Who, you're seeing the only existing footage of that particular 1965 appearance at Top of the Pops. Wow. I never thought I could say thank you, Doctor Who, for saving some Beatles archival footage, but that's right. amazing. That's awesome. <laughs> One day when you're not here and I take over this podcast for the day, the topics probably will be like all the connections between Doctor Who and the Beatles because there's like 20 of them. That's probably not a bad topic. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I watched, I think, the Eccleston uh, version of Doctor Who and mm -hmm. I, didn't, I didn't love it. I gotta, I gotta admit, I, but I'm not a huge sci-fi fan. So that it's really not for me. I'm not either, though. I don't really like yeah. other sci-fi. It's really cheesy. Back then, it was like 2006. It was really, really, really cheesy. You have to get to about the seventh or eighth episode with him. He's actually a great doctor. If you would like to see him actually naked and want to see his actual penis, watch Lennon Naked also. Oh, amazing. Okay, well, yeah, that was going to be my next question. Yeah. Like, how, how can I see Chris Reckleson naked? That's what I thought. I was going to ask you. I thought that was him and Lennon Naked. But Yeah, it was him um, and Lennon Naked, and Peter Capaldi is George and John and Yoko. That's so funny. And I loved, uh, you know, Peter Capaldi is such a great actor. I loved him in 40-something, I think, with my boyfriend Benedict Cumberbatch uh and uh yeah and obviously Tennant and the new doctor Jodie Whittaker and yes I love yes. David Tennant he is my doctor I was gonna say I love I love Broadchurch mm. Broadchurch is so good well if you love Broadchurch the writer and showrunner of Broadchurch is the new showrunner of Doctor Who if you Amazing. couldn't be even more persuaded to watch this I hope that's exactly okay, what you do will... when you get off this recording I will watch this, and this is now a Broadchurch podcast. BC stands for Broadchurch. Broadchurch the Beatles. That's our this oh. is podcast now. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. So Mella! <laughs> Mella! Oh, I love it. And Olivia Coleman's going to be the queen. Okay, i got to stop because yes. I'm just so excited. Which also, so the, the original prince was the 11th Doctor, Matt I Smith. Know. So it the connections all, keep on going. It all comes back together. And I don't know if I've ever told you, but I saw them. I watched them film Doctor Who when it was in New York. No. Yeah. 
So I saw, and I love Karen Gillan. I think she's amazing. I want my hair to be just like Karen Gillan's. Right? So it's gorgeous. Cool. Yeah. Anyway, is the clip on YouTube of that Doctor Who with the with the ticket to ride on top of the pops? No, I found it on something called zapinternet.com, which might blow up all of our computers if we click on it. But uh-uh. I did find it. The BBC has taken it off for copyright reasons. Uh-oh. Well, we'll post it, I guess, and hope, pray nobody gets a virus. Not our fault. Don't <laughs> no. blame us. Don't add us. <laughs> It's really good, though. It's really good. You should watch it. It's worth it. It's worth a virus, I guess. Yeah, because it's funny, because one of the companions is from the 25th century, and she's like, oh, classical music. <laughs> you know, because it was 500 years before. Because time travel. Hilarious. I love time travel. Okay. Time travel's great. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> thanks for listening to Because the Beatles. As always, subscribe on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening right now. Please give us a rating or review so other Beatle maniacs can find us. Don't forget to look us up on Spotify as well. And follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We'll be posting photos and more from this episode and beyond. And we will see you next time here on Because the Beatles. Bye. Bye.